morning and uh, welcome to you all. Um, it is a auspicious day today, uh, as it should be every Sunday, because it's the Lord's Day. It's the day on which the Lord was raised from the dead to new life, and uh, He is the one in whom we have life. But it is also, on Tuesday, as El mentioned, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And so uh, we're going to be looking today at a little bit of church history and theological history out of, out of the Reformation. Um, the light of the gospel was recovered from amidst the darkness. And the darkness was that the light of the gospel had been obscured by man's traditions, by authorities that were raised up over Christ, raised up over his word. Uh, for the purposes of political power, for earthly riches. There's so very, so very, very, very much to talk about today, but we only have time for a, a brief survey. I would highly recommend that you come on Tuesday to St. Agnes to hear an amazing preacher, studied for years in God's Word in the original languages, and um, we're going to be singing some Reformation hymns and uh, having an amazing time in the Word there led by Antonia. So I'd encourage you to come to St. Agnes. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to, to ask Jockey to come and read the texts for today, which is Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 28. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who was, has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Amen. And that is the very good news. Um, the second text, which will be a launching point uh, for today, is Isaiah 42, verse 8. The Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So that's God's holy word to us so far. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your grace towards us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love that you have for each of us as your children. As ones you've gathered and made alive together with Christ. Lord, we pray that as we consider your mighty works in history, that that you would be glorified and lifted up in our hearts and in our minds and in our praises. We ask that by your Spirit, you would work through your word to bring us deeper faith, that you bring us sweeter joy, Lord, 
and that you bring us sturdier trust and true peace. Lord, would you guard me from error and would you hold each of us firm in the truth as we, con- as we consider your word to us. We ask these things boldly in the name of our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm speaking to you here today from a pulpit, which is historically some kind of a symbol of uh, authority. But the thing is, that authority is a derivative authority. It only exists to the extent that it conforms to the word of God. And that is one of the major issues that was uh, resolved as a result of the Reformation. So if you hear anything that's not from the word today, then I give you permission to stand up and say, that's not from the Lord. <laughs> okay, so you might, you might be asking why it's worth considering church history. So think of it this way. If I uh, meet a man and his wife, and I say to him, hey, um, so this is your wife. Yes, I love her very much and know everything about her. And I say, oh, okay, where did she grow up? And he goes, well... Actually, I'm not sure about that. I said, oh, okay. Where did you go to school? What did you study? Oh, good question. I'd be thinking, do you really know this person? Uh, Is not where she came from, what she's done, things that have happened to her, are those not part of who she is? Is that not part of her identity? And so I think we're a bit like that with church history. It's something I've been challenged on recently. It's like, do I really know the heritage? Do I really know the history of this family that I'm a part of? Not just my local church community, but the church as a whole. How has the Lord brought together the church throughout history? And so that's what I'm hoping we'll see is incredibly valuable today. We can learn how to avoid repeating past mistakes. We can learn um, how to identify the truth. We can stand on the shoulders of those who have done wondrous things to bring us the light that we have in the knowledge of the gospel. Uh, there is a, a, also a very definite sense in which it's profitable for us to understand that this is a book that is soaked in blood. It is, it is not only stained with the blood of our Savior, but it is stained with the blood of those who died to translate it and those who died to preach the gospel and to keep the gospel true. Um, I think a couple of examples here. Um, we had... Uh, martyred just in and around the reformation era we had Jan Hus a priest from Bohemia who was burnt at the stake in 1415 uh, for his opposition of the church of Rome we have uh, Girolamo Savonarola is that right Antonio um, <laughs> an Italian friar who was hanged and burned in 1498 it was Charles Spurgeon who said the doctrines that we preach to you are doctrines that are baptized in blood And so it should be with the weight of this, the seriousness, that we think, hey, we hold this in our hands as an amazing grace from God through the sacrifice not only of our Savior, but of many, many martyrs, translators, and those who have come before us. So in every way, the examination of church history is something that can be fruitful for us. It, It can help us to understand how we got the Word. It can help us grow in love for the Word, and it can ultimately help us grow in love for uh, the church for whom Christ died. Preparing this sermon has been encouraging, it's been challenging, and it's been humbling. Uh, I'd say it's encouraging because I've seen how God has used very deeply flawed people to accomplish wonderful things. Jonathan said last week, not many of these men would have been allowed in my church. They were downright scoundrels. (laughs) 
thank goodness that we have uh, a Lord who has a different standard. And uh, God, God uses sinful and broken people to accomplish quite extraordinary things. But he does so so that the magnitude, the light, the brilliance of his grace can be made known. In the Bible, we have people who God chose to lead nations who were adulterers, murderers, liars. Quite extraordinary. But it was so that God's grace could be magnified. It was challenging to me because I realized that we're prone to idolatry, not just in the big things, but also in the smaller things. For example, I don't uh, have a physical idol in my house that I bow down before. Um, but I find little things, as the more time I spend in the Word, little things being exposed that are small little idols in my life. And some of these idols were these men, these reformers, people I held in very high esteem because of the wonderful work that they'd done in history. And so to find them having flaws, some of them quite serious, was, was a challenge to me. Um, and, and this is why we must be reminded, this is, this is what happens when we have expectations of people that should only be head of Christ. And so we should put our trust not in men, but in God. It was also humbling for me, because I realized afresh that I too am a deeply flawed individual. Um, I, I was able to recognize uh, wickedness in light of what I saw in others. Look, we aren't perfect. We sin against ourselves, we sin against others, and worst of all, we sin against God. Sometimes, catastrophically. But the good news is that God is in the business of saving sinners. And in fact, God is in the business only of saving sinners who recognize that they are sinners. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come for the well to the Pharisees in one of the most cutting remarks in Scripture, because they were the sickest. But he said, I didn't come for the well. I, I came for those who know they need a physician. Um, so what we're coming to, what the crux of it all is, what is the gospel? How can we be saved? Well, by the 16th century, the answers to this, these questions had been almost totally obscured by the development of this massive man-made system. The system suppressed the truth. It hid the Bible. It took it out of the hands of the people. And it invented a multitude of doctrines and traditions and subjected the people to a yoke of keeping the law in order to be saved. It replaced the clear teachings of salvation by grace through Jesus um, as taught by Christ and the apostles and replaced it with um, idolatries that included the veneration of Marys, the praying to the saints, teaching that confession of sins to a priest was necessary for forgiveness, teaching that the church's traditions were on an equal authority with Scripture, teaching the false doctrine of purgatory, where one can work back one's righteousness to enter heaven if you did not die in mortal sin. It also taught that regeneration, the newness of life, came through the actual act of baptism as opposed to sovereign work of God's Spirit. It taught that Christ was present in body, blood, and divinity in the Mass, and Christ was being re-sacrificed over and over again every week. And most of all, they taught that we were not saved by grace through faith alone, but through faith and good works. Now, there's a man named Martin Luther who was studying to become a lawyer. 
And one night he was returning home and he found himself stuck in a storm. Um, and it was really, really bad and he thought he was going to die. So he prayed to, I think it was St. Anne, who's the patron saint of minors. Um, and he said, look, if, if I survive, I will uh, devote my life to God and become a monk. So he survived and so he felt bound by his conscience and so he joined a monastery order. And uh, he read the Bible a lot and all he could see was this holy God, this righteous God who made impossible demands on people. And he grew to dislike this God who had these high standards. And it eventually, the more he explored it, he came to hate this God, saying he is a vindictive and spiteful one who has standards for us that no one could meet. And he, he described this period of his life um, as one of deep spiritual despair. He said, I lost touch with Christ the Savior and Comforter and made him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. He, he tried everything he could to find absolution. He fasted. He, he read for hours. He would sometimes confess his sins for six hours straight with a priest. And the more he dug into that, the worse it got. Uh, during the, um, this time, he was, he was studying, and he actually eventually got a doctorate in theology from the University of, of Wittenberg. Um, and uh, he ended up being installed in 1512 as the dean of theology at the University of Wittenberg. And during this time, he was studying various books of the Bible. And he came across passages such as Galatians 3.11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting from Genesis. And uh, it says, he began to rethink his positions on how one might be justified uh, before God. And it was around this time that um, Johann Tetzel, he was a commissioner for papal indulgences. Uh, what this means is, it's a, an indulgence is a declaration by the, pope, the papacy that you can pay for forgiveness of sins. And they did this prostitution of God's grace in order to, at that time, they were building the um, St. Peter's Basilica. So they were raising funds to it. And so this, this wicked man would go around saying, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. It's like 15th, 16th century marketing slogan, right? Um, and so that's what they were doing. They were prostituting the gospel of grace for financial gain. The idea you could buy yourself or one's family members freedom from, from hell. And if you look closely, you'll probably recognize some similar teachings today in the prosperity gospel. You've got people of the likes of Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Paula White, Benny Hinn. They're peddlers of a false gospel. They teach that you need to demonstrate your faith by sowing a financial seed. And one day, judgment is coming. At this time, though, um, as I said, they were, they, were trying to, they were trying to raise funds for St. Peter's Basilica, and, and Martin Luther saw the wickedness of what they were doing. And so he wrote 95 theses as an objection, and uh, he nailed it to the castle door at Wittenberg. Now, this is often like heralded as if he was some raving lunatic who came and hit a hammer and a nail into a pristine door, and everybody was totally shocked. It was the castle door functioned effectively as a notice board. 
And uh, he was not trying to start a reformation or a revolt so much as to try and engage, genuinely engage, and, uh, and try and help the church to uh, get right in its footings on this issue. Uh, but uh, this small act of God was used to shatter the very fabric of this huge man-made organization. And what followed from this was the issuing of something called a papal bull, uh, which, which threatened excommunication if Luther didn't recant 42 of the things that he had said. And so he responded to this by going to the town center and setting fire uh, to the papal bull. Um, and uh, so after this, he was called to a council called the Diet of Worms, where he was again asked to recant his, his writings. And he said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures... And by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And as a result, he was after they deliberated, formally declared a heretic, and a warrant was issued for his uh, arrest so that the appropriate punishment could be issued. But a friend of his called Frederick the Wise hid him in the Wartburg Castle, where he spent the next few years translating the Bible, the entire Bible, into German from the original languages. And it's so good that a lot of the text which he translated is still used today in the modern German translations. Um, he would go out dressed as a knight so that people couldn't recognize him in the town to do his bits and pieces. A very crafty guy. Um, yeah. So um, at, at the end of this, um, there was his writings began to be copied and, and circulated everywhere and spread very quickly. And uh, soon, more than 20 other countries throughout Europe had uh, churches who were leaving the Roman Catholic um, organization in droves. The momentum had gained and the Lord's work was taking effect. And as a result, we have, there's a Latin phrase which we refer to the Reformation as post tenebris, tenebris lux, after darkness, light. After years of the darkness of a false system, the light of the gospel was shining forth once again. So we're going to move towards our text now um, and ask, what is this light of the gospel what were the theological implications? There is a lifetime worth of riches to explore here. Uh, but a summary of these five key doctrines is contained in what we call the five solas. They are sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Sola scriptura, according to the scriptures alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. These are the five solas. So we're going to take a little look at each of these. Uh, we're going to begin with the, the, the second text of our reading. This is Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, where he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Now what God is saying here is, I am Yahweh. I am God. And so I will not share my glory with anybody else. No idols. Uh, why is this right? It's right because he is God. Uh, he is the one alone who is deserving of our praise, the only one 
who deserves our worship. And he rightfully will not share it with false gods. And he will not share it with anything that is raised up as divine. And this is what was happening very much at the time of the Reformation, that um, saints were being prayed to and Mary was being venerated. The bread and the wine were being bowed to. If you've been to a Catholic church, as people walk in, they bow because God is present in Christ in the sacraments there, being represented, making a mockery of Christ's substitutionary atonement. God will not share his glory with an idol, including the idol of false gospels. So the teaching that salvation comes through faith and works is a false gospel. In fact, it's no gospel at all. It steals glory from God, claiming that man's works can merit salvation. The teaching that we are uh, partly responsible in any way for our salvation is a thief of glory from God. It's called synergism, and it's very popular today. It teaches that God requires man's cooperation in order to bring about salvation, that God won't violate this magisterial free will that we're supposed to have. But that, my brothers and sisters, would be terrible, terrible news. Uh, Many of you have heard it said, well, you know, God is a gentleman. He doesn't force anybody to do anything. It could not be further from the truth. God must invade and conquer the fortress of my rebellious heart. If you are saved, it is because Christ, according to to Ephesians 2.14, has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. He smashed through it. You did not dismantle it brick by brick. The God of the scriptures is not helplessly beckoning us towards him in some vain hope that someone may take up his offer of salvation. No, indeed, God is powerfully at work. He's destroying the strongholds of hatred of God in our hearts. That's how you were saved. He's smashing down the buttresses of disobedience. He's crumbling the foundation of pride. The Bible tells us that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And if it pleases him to rescue helpless sinners, it is simply delusional to think that we could thwart that God. In any synergistic version of the gospel, God does not receive all the glory because I'm the one who came to him. But the Bible teaches that Christ is the one who came to me. Synergistic synergism. In any synergistic version of the gospel, God does not receive all the glory. But the Reformation uh, brought a sense of the glory of God back. That the, the real glory of God is in the true gospel, shines forth in the true gospel of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Westminster divines recognized this when they created the Catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it asks, what is the chief end of man? And answers, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right, right. But we should be quick to ask then, how is it that we glorify God? Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all things to the glory of God? Really? How? Well, we do them in submission to his authority, giving thanks to him for what he has done. 
God's glory is the point of everything he does, whether it's in his creation, his mysterious providence, whether it's in his election of a people for himself, whether it is in the making and keeping of covenants, whether it's in the blessings mediated to us in our Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's in justification or whether it's in the glorification of the saints on that last day. Therefore, the glory of God should be the aim. It should be the end. It should be the teleos of all that we do. Rome taught that this was not possible, that the only glorifying work was church work. And all the rest of the people out there were just peasants. And they just had to work to keep alive. The laity. It was meaningless. You just had to roll on to keep things going. But church work, wow, real, real ministry to God. <laughs> but one of the great benefits of the Reformation was the destruction of the secular sacred divide, where it was taught that we must and can bring glory to God in all things that we do. So, all jobs, from the simplest to the most complex, from the most obscure to the most public, from the most unpleasant to the most comfortable, from the physical to the spiritual, all work matters because all work can bring glory to God and just as much as another work. This is soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura teaches that scriptures alone are the sole and infallible authority for all matters of faith and life. It's referred to as the formal principle of the Reformation. A formal principle is the idea of where a religion or a concept gets its authority. And uh, the Christian religion gets its authority from the scriptures, which are theopneustos, breathed out by God, inspired by God. It is the plumb line against which all teaching must be measured. It is the yardstick by which truth is discerned. It is the God-breathed basis for our knowledge. You see, I've been having discussions with people recently, some in person, some online. The moment Scripture is not your highest authority, you are, on a, you are unhinged. And as I said to somebody, it's a person in this area, in significant authority, and says, yeah, but um, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So I said, that's good. Who is Jesus Christ? starts telling me. I was like, where did you get that information? It's from the scriptures. It's like, how does one become saved? We put your trust in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. How do you know that? Scriptures. See, you can't not appeal to scriptures. Otherwise, why are you, why are you right and the Hindu wrong? They can, they can say, my, I had a subjective experience where Vishnu appeared to me. Why is that not authoritative? All right. We have the scriptures. Now, it may seem very obvious to you that uh, the scriptures should be our highest authority. Uh, but at the time of the Reformation, that was not the majority view. The church wanted to control and subjugate people. So it taught that the Roman traditions, that their, uh, their doctrines, the words of the Pope, ex cathedra, were inerrant and were at, have, at the same authority level as the scriptures. But there's a 
there's a problem here because Rome claims to be subject to the scriptures as well. But they also claim that they defined the canon. They got to say what the Bible was. So how can you be subjective, uh, subjected to the Bible if you defined what the Bible was and you get to interpret what the Bible means? It's impossible to be subject to the thing which you say you can interpret. Scripture interprets Scripture. Christ interpreted Scripture. The inspired apostles interpreted Scripture. We don't interpret Scripture apart from Scripture. Scripture interprets itself. So the, the Roman Catholic position, although they claimed they were on equal par, church tradition was really the final authority because they got to decide what was Scripture and interpret it. <clears throat> so this served to empower the church to do basically whatever it felt like. Um, it included making up all sorts of fantasies, like the sinless birth of Mary, the idea of purgatory, the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, baptismal regeneration, that the saints are hearing prayers, and all manner of ruin came upon them for not submitting to the word of God as the ultimate authority. But we, we have these challenges today. Look, there's people who suppose themselves to be prophets, and they teach many things that the Scripture denies. Yet people don't hold them accountable because they don't know the Word, and so they are, they are led astray by these wolves in sheep's clothing. And there are also many individuals who live their lives based on subjective experiences, impressions, without examining to see, are these things true or not? And if they are, wonderful. But they have to be confirmed and, and subject to the truth of Scripture. Otherwise, we end up being tossed to and fro in every wind of doctrine. We are in need of deep reform in this area, in the world's church, in terms of where the proper place of Scripture is in the church and in the Christian life. Now, we certainly do not teach only Scripture is important. Other authorities are important. God has given us good authorities in the church to submit to. And there is benefit in that. He's given us parents who we're called to submit to. He's given us all sorts of types. And he's also given us traditions and doctrines which have developed over time. But these things all need to be subject to Scripture. And so if they're not confirmed, validated by Scripture, they are to be disregarded. Now, It was these traditions which had essentially formed and controlled what people saw as the revelation of Scripture. And so people were unable to really ask, how do we know the truth? Who is Jesus? What has he done? What, how must we be saved? And so that's why Martin Luther so eloquently stated when he, told, when he was told to recant his, his, um, his teachings, I cannot... And will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. See, we should, we should take heed of the instruction in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. This is sola scriptura, scripture alone. And next we have sola gratia, by grace, grace alone. A key to understanding the nature of God's work um, is to answer the question, how can I earn my salvation? The biblical answer is that you cannot. 
Salvation is by grace alone. Salvation is proof of God's unmerited favor. It's his free gift according to his sovereign grace. And the, the Bible does not teach that God looked down the channels of time and saw that you would choose him and then chose you. That's not what the word choose means. Uh, Ephesians 1 explains God's love, and it does so in the context of him revealing that love by predestining you to adoption as sons from before the foundation of the world. That is what that is teaching. You were eternally the object of God's love. That's why God's love for you really is true. It's not contingent on you. See, when Christ died, the sins of all his people were heaped upon his shoulders. All those sins were imputed. They were counted to Christ. And as he died, he made satisfaction for God's wrath against those sins so that we could be free from the power and the penalty of sin and raised to new life in Jesus Christ. That's why we see the language in Ephesians 2. While we were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Wonderful. Come, Lord Jesus. See, uh, we did not muster up life. This corpse did not raise itself from the dead. There is only one who raised himself from the dead. And he is the one who raised us from the dead. And that's why Ephesians 2 continues on to say that by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, a result of works, but it's the gift of God. So that no one may boast. Right? If I am the one who did the choosing, I get to share in the boasting. Because I am synergistically partly responsible for my salvation. And that literally would make me better than the person who doesn't choose God. Seriously. I, was I smarter or spiritually more aware? Um, was I more insightful? Um, was I more valuable? No, no, no. The gospel teaches there is no distinction for all have fallen short, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God and are in need of a savior. We didn't have our own merit. That's why we can't boast. You see, what makes Christ so, his sacrifice so amazing is that when his perfect life was laid down, the most valuable price was paid in order to redeem God-hating sinners. Okay? This is why God is gracious. He paid the highest price to demonstrate his love towards dead rebels. We were strangers and aliens. We were alone and without God. In the world, we were rebelling against him. It's, we were not seeking after him. I saw a video the other day of this atheist saying, Well, I have been seeking God for 40 years. And Ray Comfort says, uh, The Bible says that nobody seeks after God. This guy was not seeking after God. He was seeking after a way to justify continuing in his sins. And so it was with all of us. If I pay for something, price tag that's on it. That's not grace. That's just the transaction. It's what that thing is worth. But what is so amazing is that God died to give life to dead, worthless sinners to make them 
worth something in Christ, that they could be the objects of his eternal love. And yet, in his mercy and pure, amazing grace, God elected to set us free from the bondage of sin and to breathe new life into us and to give us his Holy Spirit as a seal, as a guarantee of a promise of our inheritance that is to come. So, sola gratia is simply the teaching that salvation is totally, 100%, completely a gift from God. And therefore, God alone is worthy of the glory for our salvation. And this is captured well in Romans 5 with the words, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is important that we comprehend and believe this because a gospel that is built on the merit of man is no gospel at all. And further, this good news that salvation comes sola gratia, by grace alone, is the foundation of our assurance. It's how we know that God will cause us to endure until the last day when he returns. Because if I earned my way into the kingdom, I can earn my way out. But because God brought me in of his will, of his sovereign grace, he will hold me fast. It is the very basis for Jesus' words to us in John 6. This is the will of the Father that I will lose none of them that he has given me, but raise them up, raise it up, the whole lot, on the last day. That's the best news. Next solo is solus Christus, in Christ alone. A part of the central teaching of Christianity is that of Acts 4, which Alan mentioned earlier. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in Christ Jesus alone. Now bear in mind that for around, at the time of the Reformation, for around 600 years, people had been told that your salvation is found in the sacraments of baptism, that salvation is found in the Lord's Supper, eating the actual physical body and blood of Christ. Some might even have pointed you towards the church as the means of their salvation. Some may have pointed you towards the priest. Some may have even mentioned Jesus himself but never without additions. You see, the Pope's name means father. But the Bible tells us, call no man your father. The Pope was also called the pontiff, which is the bridge to Christ. The Bible tells us that Christ is the only one through whom we can come to the Father. The Spirit is the one who unites us with Christ. Joins us in vital union. Not some human bridge. He was also called the Vicar of Christ. Vicar, vicarious, substitute. He's the substitute for Christ on earth. He was also taught that he is the head of the church. But my Bible teaches me that Christ is the head of the church. And he mediates his rule through the power of his word according to spirit. The Roman Catholic 
system taught that priests had authority on behalf of God to forgive sins. But we know that the only one from whom we may obtain forgiveness is that righteous man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rome taught us that there was a sacramental priesthood ministering before God for us. My Bible teaches me in Hebrews 4 that Christ has no need like those high priests of old to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. I need no human priest ministering before God. I have the great high priest, the risen one, the Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe. The only one who can condemn my soul is at this very moment interceding for me before God the Father. That's the news I want. That's the news we need. That is the news that is in the Bible. We know that there is salvation in nobody else. Not your family, not the Pope, not Mary, not baptism, not the sacraments. Not any other God, not indulgences, not your pastor, not the priest, not your spouse, nor anyone or anything else. Salvation comes through one man alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this way, we could say that in Christ alone is the answer to the question, in whom should I trust for my salvation? Then we come to sola fide, finally. This is what was called the material principle of the Reformation. The material principle means what is the substance of a religion? What's the central doctrine? It teaches the same thing that we see over and over in Scripture. That at some point in time, God declares ungodly sinners righteous by imputing Christ's righteousness to them and their sins to Christ. This happens apart from any works before the individual even begins to grow in sanctification. The Christian religion is different from every other religion because it teaches that salvation comes through faith and not through works. We've discussed this together many times before now, but we're really looking at it now in the context of the Reformation because it remains so central today as it did then. The gospel teaches that salvation is through faith alone in the objective Reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It, of course, also does teach that true faith will bear true fruit, which is good works. But those tr- that true fruit, those works, are the fruit. They are the result of your salvation. They are not the cause of it. There is only one cause of your salvation, and that is God's declaration of your justification in Christ. And there's only one way by which you may obtain it, through faith. The Bible makes it very clear what is necessary for salvation in Romans 10.9. As Antonio said to me before, this is his great comfort, this verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And to add anything to that is a false gospel. Getting this right is so important that Paul wrote in Galatians um, 1.9, As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody 
is preaching to you a gospel other than that which you first heard, let him be eternally condemned. Let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Cut off. Right? That's how serious this is. Because there is salvation in no other means but by grace through faith. And if you believe those things, the Bible tells us that you are already condemned in your sin. The Bible teaches that those who trust Christ for justification by faith alone are imputed with his righteousness. That's in 2 Corinthians 5.21. While those who try to establish their own righteousness or mix faith with works will receive the punishment that is due to all who fall short of God's perfect standard. Romans 4.4-5 says, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but who trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. And this is further clarified in Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We have also believed in in, uh, Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law... No one will be justified. So what exactly is the nature of this faith then? Well, Romans 4, 3 faces, uh, phrases it this way. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What a remarkable comfort. See, faith is believing what God has promised. And specifically in the context of salvation, this means redemption for those who place their trust in Jesus Christ alone. Now, I know that many of you, along with myself, will be saying, what if my faith is not that strong? How do I know that I'm saved, or how can I be saved? And I'll tell you a little story to illustrate. Imagine it's the eve of Passover. The angel of death is coming. And you have two Jewish men with strong Jewish names, Kevin and Jeff. So Kevin says to Jeff, so, t- tonight's the night. Did you, did you put the blood on the doorpost? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not stupid. Yes, yeah, well, you know, I'm just a little nervous because, you know, you have three sons. I, I only have one. What, what, if, what, if, what if he does? Um, and he's like, well, you just told me you put the blood on the doorpost. And he's like, yeah, I, I, I know, but um, are we going to do the meal and everything? But... You know, it's pretty scary. Some strange things have been happening around here recently, floods and plagues and all that kind of thing. It's like, um, one of your sons dies, it's all right for you. If my son dies, it's over for my family. Um, the guy says, well, I, Jeff, says, I am completely confident because God has made this promise and I have put the marks on the door and so my sons will be fine. The question I have for you is, which men's sons survived? Answer is both. The answer is both. You see, it's not the intensity or the clarity of my faith that holds me up to salvation. It is the object of my faith, the blood of the Lamb. It's not the degree of faith I have. It's not the things I do. It is the person in whom I have the faith. 
That is why in Matthew it talks about how faith, as small as a mustard seed, can move mountains. Why? Not because that faith moves mountains, but the person in whom the faith is placed moves mountains. So I want this to be an encouragement to you. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. There are many today who are claiming that the Reformation was a mistake, some kind of family squabble, where both sides just need to get together around a table and shake hands. But 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, What fellowship can light have with darkness? Indeed, the Reformation did not split the church. It simply discerned the true church from the false church. It discerned the true gospel from the false gospel. And we stand today in the bright light of gospel clarity as a result. So let us not take this lightly. Let us labor in prayer for the truth. Let us labor in evangelism and in preaching so that the light is not hidden again by the chicanery of man-made religions. We would do well to remember 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So let us continue in the truth of the gospel, giving thanks to God for who it is, for who he is, what the gospel is, and what he has done. And finally, having heard so clearly the gospel truth today, it's my sincere hope that those of you here who have not yet repented of your sins would do so and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would believe in a salvation that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and to the glory of God alone. And for those of you who are believers, that you would continue to reform your lives according to these truths. That you would be blessed and and lifted up in God's spirit. That he would bring you an abundance of peace and joy. All in thanksgiving and glory to God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for your mighty works in history. We thank you that you've given us a church that has the truth. We thank you for the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is held up by the church as a pillar and buttress of this truth. Thank you that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Pray that you'd work in each heart here, Lord, bearing witness with your children that they are loved and adopted by you, and bearing witness with those who do not yet know you that you are the fortress in which we have safety from the penalty of death against sin. Jesus, in you there is forgiveness of sin, there is life, there is joy, there is peace, there is righteousness, and there is pleasures forevermore. We pray that you'll continue to reform your church according to your word and reform our hearts in holiness to the image of your perfect son. We boldly approach your throne, asking these things in the name of Jesus, so that we may now say, along with 1 Timothy 1.17, to you, Lord, the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen.